Well, welcome, one and all. We are in the middle of a sermon series that I've entitled Songs of Hope. In Luke 1 and 2, in the first two chapters, there are a series of songs. We saw in the last couple weeks songs sung, or at least poems recited, by the angel Gabriel as he came to Zechariah to announce the the jerth, to announce the birth of John the Baptist. A song or poem recited or sung by the angel as he came to Mary to announce the birth of the Savior, Jesus Christ. We will continue to have songs next week and on Christmas Eve and the week after that. But this morning we come to perhaps the most famous of these songs, the Magnificat, where Mary, the mother of Jesus, sings, waxes eloquent, sings a psalm about God's mercy and his grace to her and to his people. We've called this Songs of Hope because, just as we've mentioned, you know, at times of remembrance, looking back, and times of hope, so these songs are full of hope, hope for the nation of Israel. They remind us that the birth of Jesus is not just a cutesy story that we can retell, you know, when, when drinking coffee on Christmas morning and opening presents, although it's certainly that. Please do that. But the story of the Savior who came is the story of how a baby in a manger fulfills the hope of a nation. The nation of Israel that was under the thumb of oppressive rule by despots and empires for centuries. At this time, they are under the the thumb of the Roman Empire. Caesar, off in Rome, they are beholden to him. There is no more a throne of King David. There is no more any self-rule. And there is a hope among the people of Israel, a hope for a future redemption. And each one of these songs in Luke 1 and 2 look back to that hope, and they look forward to the coming redemption that this baby would bring. As we read this passage this morning, we're going to read, there's a little chunk, and then we're going to get into the Magnificat itself. But in the Magnificat, in this song, I want you to listen for a couple things. For our invocation this morning, I I prayed Psalm 136. And if you weren't, you know, kind of, if your ears weren't adjusted, it might have seemed a little odd, right? You know, the Bible talking about, you know, Og, king of Bashan, Sihon, king of the Amorites. Like, what's going on with all of that? But there's a refrain that's repeated throughout that psalm. For his steadfast love endures forever. The Hebrew, this is not going to be on the test, but if you remember it, that's great. The Hebrew behind steadfast love is the word chesed. And it's really difficult to translate. It's difficult to say. But it's difficult to translate. Some translations translate it loving kindness. Some translations translate it steadfast love. But the idea behind it is covenant faithfulness. God has made promises and he will keep them. He will exalt his people Israel, and he will cast down their enemies. That's a theme throughout that psalm. That's a theme throughout Mary's song here. 
The word that it's translated, uh, that, that, that is translated mercy in this passage is based on the same word as steadfast love in that psalm. It's God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. God has made promises and he will fulfill them. Hear that in the background of this passage as we read it. Hear these words from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. It was a long trek, by the way, not easy to do. And she entered into the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, "'Blessed are you among women!' And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Then Mary sang, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months, and then she returned home. Will you pray with me one more time? Lord God, I pray that as your word is preached this morning, that you would be glorified. I pray that these would not be my words that I speak, but I pray that they would be yours. Lord, if there is anything that I say this morning that you did not have for me to say, I pray that you would remove it from the hearts and minds and memories of those who have gathered here. Lord, if I skip something that you have for me to say, I pray that you would implant that truth on the hearts and minds of those gathered here anyway. Let your word go forth. Lord, and may it be fruitful. May it accomplish the task for which you have sent it out. And I pray that I wouldn't get in the way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I think it'll be helpful for this, for this song if we kind of work backwards through it. We're not going to go line by line for sure. But I think the key to unlocking what's going on here is found at the end. In verse 55 and verse 54. 
as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The word there is spoke, but the idea is that God has made promises to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring, to his seed, to his descendants, from generation to generation forever. And this is important. The promises that God makes to Abraham are central to interpreting the rest of the Bible. If you remember, there are three promises that God makes to Abraham. God promises Abraham blessing. He promises that he will bless Abraham. He promises that, indeed, the entire world would be blessed through Abraham's descendants. This goes back to the Garden of Eden. Right before the curse, God blessed Adam and Eve. And when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, God did what to the ground? He cursed it. And they were driven from his presence. What God is promising to do through Abraham is to undo the curse that Adam and Eve brought onto the world. To undo the sin that all of us have because of their sin. To undo the brokenness and the pain and the disease and the death that we experience because of their sin. God promises blessing to Abraham. Second thing God promises Abraham, and I'm kind of powering through these, even though we could spend a lot of time on them. The second thing God promises to Abraham is that Abraham would have a number of descendants. He says, a great nation is going to come from you. And if you remember, this was a whole thing because Abraham was old, it didn't have a kid, and he, there's this whole thing with Hagar and Ishmael, but God miraculously provides Abraham a son. And indeed, a great nation comes from Abraham. This also looks back to Adam and Eve, because God told Adam and Eve to do what? To be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to create a people for God who would live for him and who would worship him. What God is promising to do through Abraham is to make for himself a people, as Adam and Eve were supposed to do. The third thing that God promises to Abraham is that he would bring him to a land, the land of Canaan. This also, surprise, surprise, goes back to the Garden of Eden. Because when Adam and Eve sin and God curses the ground, what does he do to Adam and Eve? He kicks them out. He says, you're not going to be in my presence anymore. You're not going to be in this sacred place God promises that Ab to Abraham that his people are going to have a sacred place to dwell and to walk with God. There's going to be the land of Israel, and then there's going to be the temple at the middle of it. Right? Just like the tree of life was in the middle of the garden, where Adam and Eve could come and they could fellowship with God, the people of Israel would be able to come to worship God together. God is promising these three things to Abraham to undo everything that Adam and Eve did. So when Mary sings about the promises that God has uh, spoken to the fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, this is what she's talking about. The redemption and the fulfillment of all things. In verse 54, the verse before that, she sings this. She says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Now remember what we said about the word mercy. Mercy. The word there, the idea there is God's steadfast love, his faithfulness to his covenant, his faithfulness to the promises that he made to Abraham. So, because God promised Abraham certain things, God acts in a certain way. Because God is going to fulfill his promises. 
The ultimate example that we see of this in the Old Testament is in the Exodus, when God brings his people out of the land of Egypt. And a lot of those themes kind of go through this song here. Israel were a lowly people. They were slaves in Egypt. They were oppressed. They were governed, just as the people of Israel were in Mary's day by the nation of Rome. The people, you know, 1,500 years before that were governed by the, the Pharaoh of Egypt. His thumb was down on them. And God cast down the kings and the rulers and their false gods, brought them down, and he exalted his people, brought them up out of the land of Egypt. That wordplay that we use, up out of the land of Egypt, is not a coincidence. The word up is there on purpose. But God brings them up out of the land of Egypt. He exalts the humble and brings down the proud from their thrones. Because God is faithful to his covenant, because God will keep his promises, he acts in a certain way. He redeems the people of Israel from the land of Egypt. And that, that pattern, at least the hope for that pattern, continues. God redeemed his people, yes, from Egypt. He, he brought them out, but was that the end of their problems? No. Was there still sin to be dealt with? Yes. Was there still brokenness and just natural disasters and death to be dealt with? Yes. Does God still have work to do to fulfill the promises to Abraham? Yes. And so the hopes of the prophets that we read earlier look back to what God has already done, and they look forward to what God will do. God is in the business of bringing down the wicked rulers who use their power and authority for bad. God is in the business of exalting those who are lowly, those who are humble. And we still have those who are lowly. We still have those who are poor. But the birth of Jesus Christ shows us that God is still at work to fulfill his promises. It shows us that God is not happy with the way the world is being run. The baby that is coming back to reign as king will fix it. There, there's, a, there's a difficulty in reading this passage. Maybe, maybe you picked up on it as we were, as we were reading it. And I want us, there's a tension that's probably going to make us uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. I will be honest with you as I read it. But there's a tension here because in this text, there's a spiritual aspect and there's a physical aspect. So Mary, Mary talks about how God lifts up the humble and brings down the proud. And then Mary talks about how God lifts up the poor and brings down the rich. And for us Western American Christians, that last little bit can be, can be a little awkward. I don't know if it's awkward for any of you, but it's awkward for me. You get shades almost, just, you know, if I can venture into politics for a little bit. You know, Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax. Tax the billionaire. Send the rich away empty. And you read this, and you're like, what is going on? What's going on here? I'm uncomfortable with that. And our, our quick reaction is to explain it away is to say, oh, it doesn't really mean that. It must mean something else because it makes me uncomfortable. 
And we go to a spiritual aspect of this. But the reality is that we can't so easily separate the spiritual aspect of this and the physical aspect of this. There are others from other traditions, from other cultures, other parts of the world and other times and other places that kind of, they, they're tempted to make the opposite error and to say, hey, this isn't really about spiritual things. This is about us and revolution and we are the lowly and we've got to go bring down the rich and we're going to do bloody revolution in order to get it and the Bible's behind us. That's a broad brush, to be sure. But there, there's two temptations that we can face with this. Right? Is this about spiritual humility or is this about poverty? I don't know if we can divide so easily between those two things. And here, here, I, think is, here I think is why. For those who are rich, and just, just to be clear, let, let, let's say this. If you're sitting in this room in 2019 in the United States of America, you probably fall into this category, right? Most of us know where our next meal is coming from. Most of us can go to Kroger or Meyer and, you know, swipe the credit card, swipe the debit card. We don't have to worry about paying for food. We don't have to go home and, and open the fridge and see, you know, we've got to stretch this a little bit in order, to, in order to be happy and healthy. Most of us don't worry about, you know, going home and having a place to live. So if we're honest with ourselves, we're, we're in, the, in the rich category. We're often not on the, on the down and out category. There's some overlap between the two, but I think we should think of ourselves as in that category. And if we have enough money in our bank account to pay our bills, if we have a house that's paid for, or at least close to being paid for, you know, we don't have to worry about where we're going to sleep at night, then our tendency, our temptation, is to say, God, I don't need you. Now, none of us say that out loud, right? That's, you know, we don't actually use those words. But subtly... We're tempted to trust ourselves instead of turning into trusting God. We are tempted to accumulate wealth for ourselves instead of using it for generous purposes. Those who are on the down and outs, those who are, are not part of the majority culture, who feel oppressed by the status quo, those who don't have the means to pay for food for the next day or the means to pay for housing, they have... You know, they feel down and out. They trust God, or at least the draw there is to say, hey, I don't know where my next meal is coming from, so I'm going to look to God for my next meal. So when, when Mary separates these two things out, she does so knowing that those who are rich are often tempted to not trust God to provide for their needs. They are tempted to use their means and influence for themselves and not for the benefit of other people. Our tendency is to go on the spiritual side of things and say, this is all about humility and pride, and to not take the warnings that come with being Americans in the year 2019, who most of us, probably all of us, but I say most of us just in case, most of us know where our next meal is coming from. Unless you, unless you misunderstand me, I'm not saying that wealth is bad. Don't, don't hear me say that. The book of Luke has a lot to say about the rich and the poor. 
But the book of Luke gives us examples of those who are rich who use their wealth for good. Right? We talked a few weeks ago about Theophilus. Remember him? The guy who the book is dedicated to right at the front. And you, oh most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus is probably a rich guy who used his money to fund the research that Luke did to go into this book. He used his wealth for good. Later in the book of Luke, we'll see that Jesus is funded by a series of wealthy and connected women. They are his benefactors. And there's no condemnation for them, but they use their wealth for good. The highest example in this passage is found in verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. God is lifted above all things. And what does God do? He comes down, humbles himself. He crosses that divine from powerful to weak, from rich to poor. He comes down, becomes humble, lives the life of a humble servant, dies a shameful death of a criminal, is exalted on the cross, exalted in his shame. And the cross functions as the crowning of him as a king. When the soldiers beat the crown of thorns into his head, when they put up the sign that says, this is the king of the Jews, they meant to mock him, but they crowned him. And in his humility, Christ was lifted up. The mighty one, come down to be humble, to bring us to God. God uses his power and influence to lift us up. And so we ought to do the same. If we can go back to Abraham for a minute. What were those three promises again? Do we remember them? There was blessing, there was a land, and then there were descendants. You know, a great nation would come from Abraham. And Mary talks about the the grace that God has for generation to generation. He shows his steadfast love, his mercy to all of these generations. God has been faithful. But who are the true children of Abraham? Verse number 50, the title of our sermon this morning. His mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. His mercy is for those who fear him. Now, when we use the word fear, maybe if you've grown up in church, you're kind of familiar with this, but if you're, if you're new to church or if it's not really your thing, when we use the word fear, it can throw us off, right? We think of being afraid of something, right? You know, like at Halloween, you go into a haunted house and you're terrified that a little mummy is going to jump out and, and scare you or something, so there's, there's fear. You know, we ought, we ought to live in, in fear that there's something a little scary around the corner. Or maybe there are, there are real concerns that we have where we, where we really fear. You know, this, this is not the fear of an abused wife from her husband that she has to walk on eggshells because he might just explode. This is not that kind of fear. This fear is a reverence for God. God is the mighty one. He is the most high. And God has a plan for the ages. And he talks about that plan to Abraham, right? To lift up the humble, to bring down the proud, the ones who trust in their own wealth. God has a plan to fix the world. And the ones who fear him are the ones who trust in God to work out his plan. 
Mary is one of these people, one of the people who fear God. Elizabeth, in her blessing to Mary, verse 45, says, Blessed is she who believed. Faith, belief, and fear are kind of linked here, even though you might not think that they would be. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord, right? Mary believed that God was going to do a great work in her, and he did. Perhaps the greatest work that he has ever done in a single human being. Mary trusted God. And Mary, though she was poor, much poorer than any of us in this room, though she was lowly, a virgin, a teen mom, though she was probably pushed to the outskirts of society, God used her and lifted her up because that is what God is about. So God's mercy, God's love, God's faithfulness to his promises are for those who fear him. Those who fear him who are, who are on the rich side, who are on the influential side. Those who fear him will participate in God's work to lift up those who are lowly. They will use their wealth and influence for good. Those who fear him who are lowly will trust that God will lift them up because they know that he alone can save them. The true people of God, the ones who he works on behalf of in order to keep the promises to Abraham, the true people of God are the ones who trust him and the ones who fear him. So no matter how much money you have in the bank account, no matter how much you know, social influence you have today, the question is do you fear God? And do you look forward to the day when he lifts up the humble and brings down the proud? And let us not forget that God himself came down, humbled himself in order to lift us up. Will you pray with me?